This is White Collared, the podcast, Season 3, Episode 9, On the Fence. Thank you for joining me for this episode of White Collared, the podcast, which, of course, is a retrospective commentary on the USA Network television series, White Collar. My name is Eric Altenglen Hilliard. On the Fence, first aired on August 2nd, 2011, was written by Mark Goffman and directed by Paul Hollahan. The team is on the trail of a stolen 3,500-year-old Egyptian amulet, which the Egyptian government considers a national treasure and wants back. The rumor is that it is somewhere in Manhattan, having been smuggled into the country by a sexy Egyptologist. But the investigation is complicated by the fact that the original thief is none other than Matthew Keller, and it seems that he's after more than just the amulet. The episode begins. Neil is at the dining table in his apartment. He has a copy of the sub-manifest, and he is comparing what is on the manifest to what he and Mozzie have hidden away in the warehouse to make sure that Mozzie hasn't sold anything that is on the manifest. Mozzie walks in unannounced, and he's in a panic, and so he doesn't notice Neil hiding the manifest and kind of being busy. And as I said, he's in a panic. He says, they know about the treasure. He tosses down a newspaper with a headline that reads, ghost ship found with Hitler clones and priceless art. Neil, of course, ridicules the headline, focusing on the ghost ship and the Hitler clones parts. But Mozzie is insistent that the priceless art reference means that they know about the stolen treasure. Neil also reads out the story title about a vegan vampire ravaging community gardens. Now, we can see from the masthead of the newspaper that it is The Globe. And The Globe is not exactly renowned for their high-quality, accurate, truthful, non-sensationalist headlines and stories. A recent headline from The Globe, an actual headline from the actual newspaper is, Scientists Discover Life is the leading cause of death. Wow. Brilliant. That's, that's the kind of newspaper this is. So I guess this means that this is the sort of material that Mozzie considers credible reading material. Anyway, Neil tries to calm down Mozzie, telling him that there's no need to hit the panic button and that forensics don't talk and neither does Peter, which suggests that no one other than Peter really knows about anything. And Peter only knows enough to, at best, suspect something, but not know. But Mozzie is not to be deterred. He points out that the DC art crimes people are involved, one of whom was willing to spill the Nazi beans in a hotel bar. Neil hand waves that by pointing out that she thought he was Interpol, to which Mozzie responds, exactly. Well, both have a point here. Neil, that Peter is going to play it close to the vest, keeping it unofficial. And Mozzie, that Agent Melissa Matthews can't seem to keep her mouth shut, seemingly willing to talk about the treasure to anyone claiming to be official without even bothering to check who they really are. Well, Neil concedes Mozzie's point to a degree by saying, yeah, he gets it, that secrets can't be kept forever, but that no one can trace the treasure back to them. Mozzie immediately shoots a hole in that by pointing out that Hale, to whom he's already lined up to fence the Degas, is a line back to them, and Sarah, whom he calls the half-suit, who suddenly and probably very suspiciously in Mozzie's mind, broke things off. That's another line back to them. Neil says he's going to meet with Sarah to find out what she does or doesn't know, which is intended to calm Mozzie, but it doesn't. He tells Neil, skip it. Let's just get out of town because then it won't matter what she knows. But Neil tries to shoot the idea down, saying that they don't have the financial means, to which Mozzie says, but we will if we just sell the Degas. Neil continues to try to dissuade Mozzie, saying that the Degas is too high profile, leaving unsaid the part about the FBI having a partial manifest and how if the Degas is on it, it will surely attract the FBI's attention. But Mozzie won't give up. The FBI only has a partial list. The odds are minuscule that the Degas is even on it. But even if it is, so what? They'll be long gone. But Neil seemingly has the final word, insisting that if they sell the Degas, and it's on the list, then wherever they go, the FBI, and especially Peter, will not stop hunting for them until they find them. They absolutely can't do anything until they have that list. 
Next, we see Neil meeting Sarah on the street, and his excuse is that he's returning her lockpicks to her because they're candy apple red. Well, Sarah is polite, but cool. She accepts the tools, then tries to leave, but Neil insists on having a conversation. Was it the passports? No, it wasn't. And what was it? I know you, Sarah. You wouldn't have cut out like that unless you had a reason to. Okay, fine. It was the passports. You had brilliantly forged IDs. Then it dawned on me you're a con man. Are you happy? No. I want the truth. Neil, I saw the treasure. I saw it on your laptop. You hid it from me. You hid it from Peter and you're hiding it from the FBI. And now you're here to find out if I'm going to keep my mouth shut. It's not as cold as that. Really? Then what is it? Now you owe me the truth. Were you going to say goodbye to me? No. Did you come with me? Would I have come with you? How would that have worked? You just go. The whole world at our feet. Came so close to asking you. But you didn't. No. Well, then there's your answer. For Sarah, the big deal is that Neil basically lied to her and had been for some time. Yes, there was that were you going to say goodbye or just disappear thing, but it must have seemed obvious to her that he was going to bail on her, and that had to be shattering. There was also the you didn't ask thing, which to be fair, Neil knew what the answer would be. So what would have been the point? So Sarah's being a bit unfair on that part, but the biggest deal was that he had lied to her, and that was the one thing that she had already told him clearly and distinctly back at the beginning of their relationship that that would be a deal breaker in their relationship. And I think part of the issue is what those lies represented, these lies specifically represented to Sarah, that in spite of how he professed to feel about her, in spite of all the good things that he was doing with Peter and the appearance of changing his life and moving away from crime, he really wasn't changing, that he was still using people and would drop them in a heartbeat when he needed to, that never having to worry about money is still the more powerful draw on him than doing something that's meaningful and means surrounded by people I care about and respect. Anyway, Peter arrives, giving Sarah the opportunity she needs to end the conversation. And she gets in one last shot when Peter says that this explains why Neil isn't picking up his phone. She pointedly states that she would hate to keep Neil from his crime-solving duties. Yeah, it's a bit of a cheap shot, but... It's also understandable. Neil asks Peter why he's come to collect him in person, and Peter informs him that they have news on Matthew Keller. At the FBI, Peter is leading a briefing of the team. He begins by recapping the details of their past encounters with Keller and stating that the current situation is that Keller has turned up on security camera recordings in Egypt. The political unrest there, with people and police taking to the streets, has given Keller the opportunity to liberate priceless works and artifacts from museums. One of the pieces he took was the amulet of the lost Pharaoh, a one-of-a-kind 3,500-year-old amulet from the tomb of Narmar I. Now, Narmar, which in ancient Egypt may mean painful catfish, stinging catfish, harsh catfish, or fierce catfish, I guess that depends on who is doing the interpreting there. He was an ancient Egyptian Pharaoh of the early dynastic period, and he was also cited as being the last king of the pre-dastic period. Many scholars consider him the unifier of Egypt and founder of the first dynasty, and in turn, the first king of a unified Egypt. He also had the prominently noticeable presence in Canaan compared to his predecessors and successors. A majority of Egyptologists believe that Narmar was the same person as Menes, a king who unified the country through conquest with Narmar being his name and Menes an honorific. Anyway, Peter tells the team that the new Egyptian government considers the amulet a national treasure, irreplaceable, and they want it back. The problem is they don't know where Keller is, but the Egyptian authorities believe that the amulet has been smuggled into Manhattan, and the team's charge is to recover and return that amulet. Peter also reminds the team that they need to approach the case with caution given Keller's involvement. Next, we jump down to a sidewalk where Peter and Neil are seen having a chat. Peter asks Neil if he has any idea what Keller might be up to. 
Neil says it's too early to tell, but whatever they think Keller's doing, he's probably three steps past it by now. But Peter doesn't get it. He wonders out loud why Keller would risk coming back to the U.S., to which Neil responds that Keller has always been brazen. As they're walking, they come across a newsstand where Peter spots a copy of the Universe Weekly, all the news the others don't publish. With the headline story, Nazi sub discovered off coast of U.S. Alien technology inside? Aliens supplied Hitler with weapons. I wasn't able to find any reference to Universe Weekly being an actual publication, so I think this one is made up, whereas the Globe from the earlier scene is an actual newspaper, if you want to call it that. Anyway, Peter grabs a copy and shows it to Neil and jokes, hey, you think they're on to us? Peter asks Neil if Keller has contacted him because, as hard as they've tried, versions of what happened to Adler's sub have leaked out. Neil comments that it's hard to keep a secret that big, but he fails to notice Peter looking right at him and the knowing tone in Peter's words of agreement. After a moment, Peter says that Keller's a smart guy, and if he starts putting details of the various rumors together, he trails off. Neil, at least partially catching the drift, responds, you're wondering if he made the same assumption that you did. Peter concludes that if Keller thinks Neil is in possession of $1 billion worth of lost treasure, the chance of getting it and avenging himself on Neil could be reason enough to risk coming back. Neil tells Peter that if Keller thinks Neil stole the treasure, they can use that to take him down. But unbeknownst to them, they're being observed. By Matthew Keller. We have a time jump, and we are at the FBI where Peter informs Neil that they found a New York connection between the stolen Egyptian amulet and Keller. Her name? Rochelle LaRoque, an ancient civilizations expert based in Soho. The Egyptians believe that the amulet was shipped to her. Neil knows the name and knows her as an Egyptologist, but Peter comments that Egyptologist is only her day job. She's also a fence. Her technique is familiar to listeners of the podcast because it's very similar to the technique used by Jonathan Tokley Perry, who was referenced in the episode Copycat Caffrey, and which I discussed in a bonus episode entitled The Real Crimes of White Collar. Jonathan Tokley Perry disguised his stolen artifacts as gift shop tchotchkes, essentially hiding them in plain sight. Raquel LaRoque is encasing the stolen artifact that she is smuggling in durable x-ray proof molds, which are made to look like gift shop tchotchkes. But in order to pull off her latest scheme, it seems she needs a restoration tech to extract the artifacts without damaging them. Challenging work. Peter, rather sarcastically, asks Neil if he knows anyone who could pull it off, knowing full well that if Neil doesn't already know how to do it himself, his crime super friends can fill him in. Peter adds that if they can get that amulet, they're one step closer to getting Keller. Another time jump, and we see Neil and Mozzie on the top of a building walking toward a fenced-off parking area. And Neil's asking Mozzie if he knows anything about Raquel LaRoque. Mozzie says, yeah, he knows she's an Egyptologist. And she's spicy. When Neil asks what that means, Mozzie admits that he doesn't quite know. And then defensively says, hey, not all my information is helpful. They are there to meet a contact. Hail. He's happy to see them, but he does have a point of contention with Mozzie. Seems that Mozzie did some work on Hale's mobile office. In other words, installed a bunch of techno gadgets in his car. But Hale hasn't quite figured out how to use them because Mozzie refuses to write down any instructions. In his defense, Mozzie points out that it's best for everybody that there isn't any public record of his modifications. Hale says he'll accept not getting the instructions in exchange for that Degas that Mozzie's been promising him. Mozzie says it's coming. Soon. Neil supplies that there's been a minor complication, but what if they could get him something better? Hale doesn't turn down the offer. He simply says that his client has his heart set on the Degas, which sounds to me as if Hale is plotting to use the delay in getting the Degas as leverage to possibly get it and the something better. Neil says that before they can move it, and then without really completing the statement, he asks Hale if he knows Raquel LaRoque. It's very much a non sequitur, but Hale doesn't seem to clock it. Instead, he says, yeah, he does know her, and that she has an intricate concealment method, which Neil says is what he wants to talk to her about. He tells Hale that LaRoque is looking for a new restoration tech, suggesting that he's trying to get the job. 
The plan is settled on then that Hale will vouch for Neil to LaRoque and set up a meeting and that this will help resolve the issue of Neil and Mozzie selling him the Degas. Next, we see Peter and Neil are in a vehicle staking out the location of the meeting that Hale has set up with LaRoque. But Hale is late, and as they're waiting, Peter brings up a subject that Neil is not particularly eager to talk about. You and Sarah? Yes, me and Sarah. Over? Yes. So what I witnessed. Return of the breakup bag. Right. What happened to you guys? And don't give me that we're just different people routine. We are very different people. And everybody can be Peter and Elizabeth, okay? Uh, speaking of, since Hale's running late. Hey, honey, how's the stakeout going? Uh, that's why I'm calling. Looks like it's running longer than expected. Oh, no. I hate to say this, but I don't think we're going to be able to make Trey and Sheila's barbecue tonight. Wow, that's too bad, because I was ready to walk out the door. Oh, I'm sure you were. But, you know, you could go without me. Unless, of course, you're already settled in with a cup of tea and a new book. I know thee well as well, which means you're going to make up for canceling on me when you get home, mister. Oh, honey, do you know you're on speaker? Oh, hi, Neil. Hi, Elizabeth. All right, we'll crack this case soon, will you? We will. We both Sorry, I'll got to go. Okay, well, you owe me. Okay, love you. First off, Neil and Sarah. Peter has heard the we're just different people routine before, and it's not that he doesn't believe it, but he knows that there's more to it than just being different people. And although he doesn't know that the treasure and Neil's concealment of it from Sarah was a trigger, I think he does realize that it's about the difference in their morals and their ideals. And I think he's hoping to get Neil to open up and talk. I mean, really talk about what it is. Not just the usual Neil, make light of it, brush it off sort of talk. He's trying to get Neil to have the sort of talk that he told Neil he would be there for at the end of the previous episode, as you were. Now about Neil's comment that not everybody can be Peter and Elizabeth. It's understandable he would use them as a reference. After all, he's talking to Peter, and it's something that Peter would understand. But there's a tinge of bitterness and resentment in his voice. I think he believes that he's let himself believe in a false dream as exemplified by Peter and Elizabeth, or at least a false dream for him. And sometimes when people lose something or try for something and fail to achieve it, they can resent it when they see someone else who has that thing. It's, it's like the person who can't sleep at night, lying in bed, hearing their partner breathe as they sleep. The sound can be maddening because in some way it feels like a taunt, even though it's unintentional and perfectly innocent. Now, as far as Peter and Elizabeth in this conversation goes, after she tells Peter that he's going to have to make it up to her for canceling, and he tells her that she's on speaker, Elizabeth automatically assumes that Neil is in the car with him. And she's only slightly embarrassed at knowing that Neil has heard her comment. Or, or maybe she's only slightly embarrassed at the possibility that there's someone else in the car who may have heard it. Because once she knows it's only Neil, when Peter cuts Neil off at the end of the conversation, you know, abruptly cuts him off. She again, knowing she's on speaker, repeats her comment about how he owes her. So she's comfortable with that kind of conversation in front of Neil. It's, it's kind of like sometimes when you have that kind of a conversation in front of relatives, you don't want to do it in front of other people, strangers, but having those kinds of joking conversations with relatives in the area, within earshot, that's, that's a different thing, and I think that's what this is. Anyway, when Neil asks Peter why he cut him off, Peter replies that he didn't want Neil talking to Elizabeth about the case. And specifically, he didn't want Neil to mention Keller. Peter says that she got riled up after Keller had kidnapped him and that there's really no reason to upset Elizabeth by mentioning Keller because, you know, really, they don't know that he's in the States. Not really. Well, they spot Raquel LaRoque headed into the meeting place, which just happens to be a mob hangout. It seems to make sense to Neil that she would pick that place because he suggests that it's perhaps one of the safest places in the city. Peter's concerned that she won't wait too long for Hale, and he asks Neil if there's any way of contacting Hale. Neil says he's paged him. Yeah, 
Hale's old school. He has a pager for contact. Peter tells Neil that he doesn't want to lose LaRoque because she is their only link to Keller. Neil doesn't seem to think that Hale's absence needs to be a problem. Hale's already laid the groundwork. LaRoque knows that she's meeting Neil, so Neil can approach her on his own. Then Peter can try to bust them, but by letting the two of them escape, Neil can gain her confidence. But Peter has a different plan. Neil makes the approach. Peter arrests both of them. Then after a grueling interrogation, he releases the two of them together, and Raquel will then take Neil into her trust when she realizes that Neil didn't flip on her. Naturally, Neil likes his plan better, explaining that early in a relationship, it's better to experience a win. Peter smugly tells Neil that when he's an FBI agent and Peter is the ward of the federal prison system, they can do it his way. And then with mocking condescension, Neil says, and all this time I thought we were partners. Peter smiles and says, we are. It's just that the tie always goes to me. Neil gets out and puts on a pair of glasses, which doesn't seem like much of a disguise, but perhaps it's a better disguise than one might expect. Researchers at the University of New York have demonstrated that if you aren't a personal friend of either Clark Kent or Superman, you could be tricked by his glasses, just like everyone else in Metropolis. In a 2016 study about the effects that glasses have when it comes to facial recognition, 59 participants were shown side-by-side -side images in three different categories. People wearing glasses, people not wearing glasses, or an image of someone wearing glasses paired with one that wasn't. Then they were asked to determine whether each of the individuals in the pair of photographs that they were shown were the same person. Researchers wanted to test the participants' visual comparison abilities and not their memories, so they presented the images side by side, and the participants were allowed as much time as they needed, as much time as they needed to come to a conclusion. Are these both the same person or are these different people? Researchers chose images of people who the participants wouldn't know or recognize, the images were also similar to what people are used to seeing on social media, including very poses, facial expressions, lighting, and background. Passport-style photos in which the pose or facial expression doesn't shift between the images were not included. So they were trying to replicate a real-world identification situation. All the images were in color and high quality and loosely cropped around the head. Where there were images of the same people being shown side by side, the researchers made sure that the photographs didn't share backgrounds or angles or other comparable traits. And to make things interesting, they also found similar looking people or foils and added them to the mix. When subjects were shown two images of someone in glasses or two images of someone not wearing glasses, 80% of the students were able to accurately identify if the photos were the same person or not but the rate of identification dropped to 74% when comparing a person wearing glasses next to someone who wasn't. So according to the researchers, while it may still seem hard to believe that the inhabitants of Metropolis were unable to match Clark Kent with the numerous appearances of Superman in the newspaper and on television, the study shows why Kent chose glasses as an aid for his anonymity. Simple and effective. Anyway, Neil approaches Raquel, who is reading aloud from a book. Hail my heart. Hail my heart. Hail my transformation. An obvious play on the name of Hale, who is supposed to facilitate the introduction of LaRoque and Neil. In response to her part A of the passphrase, Neil responds with Book of the Dead, Chapter 30B. He then tells her that the phrase was also inscribed on the back of a 3,500-year-old scarab amulet recently removed from the Egyptian National Museum. She is somewhat disturbed that he knows that. She's disturbed that Hale isn't there. And she's disturbed that Hale obviously told Neil more than she thinks he should have. Neil responds that, hey, Hale trusts him. She counters that if that was the case, then why isn't he here? Neil flatly says, he'll show. Then he asks to see the amulet. She coldly asks if he really thinks that she would bring it with her on a first date and that she really has it in her mind to kill him. Of course, Neil would prefer that she didn't, but if she's going to, he'd at least like to see the amulet beforehand. Instead, she tests him by showing him another piece. Neil removes it from the velvet cloth that it's wrapped in and begins giving a description of the piece. An Egyptian faience composed of crushed quartz, sand, calcite, lime, and alkalis. LaRoque states that it is a late Middle Kingdom shabti buried with pharaohs to protect them in the afterlife. But it's a test. 
Neil correctly states that it isn't Middle Kingdom because the plaster is modern and it has a higher calcium content, probably to protect whatever's inside. LaRoque says that it's very hard to get to what's inside, but Neil says it would only take him a few hours to put together a restoring process. But still, she's cautious, stating that although she likes his confidence and passion, she still needs to talk to Hale. She takes the beast back and begins to get up as if to leave. Neil says that without Hale, they're both walking into the unknown, but that sometimes you have to trust your instincts. And he's trying to get her to trust him by suggesting that he's willing to trust her first. After all, it would be rude not to trust somebody back who professes their trust in you, which is what Neil's trying to use as a psychological manipulation. But it doesn't work. LaRoque says her instincts are telling her to walk away. And as she begins to do that very thing, Diana begins approaching from one side and Peter from another. Neil tells LaRoque, I see you brought company and the classic technique of accusing your opponent of the very thing that you're doing, thus shifting the focus of suspicion and attention to them, and more importantly, away from yourself. Of course, LaRoque immediately presumes that they are feds. Neil says, yeah, okay, so what's our story? She says, no story. She's not talking to them, and especially not doing so with what she terms the airport shabti in her possession. After a moment's hesitation, Neil says, fine, he'll get them out and away from the heat. He grabs her hand and begins leading her through the crowd of tables populated by the notorious telling the patrons, feds, FBI raid. The assembled gets up and begins swarming Peter, making it impossible for him to pursue Neil and LaRoque. And with a sense of annoyance, Peter mutters to himself, the tie was supposed to go to me. Next, we see Neil and LaRoque walking down the street. She compliments him on his resourcefulness. She says that her last partner, the restoration tech who created the molds around the pieces back in Egypt, wasn't as resourceful. And he's going to be in an Egyptian prison for quite some time. Neil comments that at least he shipped her the amulet before he was arrested. But as she's getting into a cab, she points out that she really has no way of knowing that for sure, at least not until the hidden piece is revealed. But it seems that Neil has won her confidence, at least in part. Although she tells him to keep his schedule open and that she'll tell him when and where, it's a don't call me, I'll call you situation because she doesn't seem to trust him enough to give him her contact information. Back at the FBI, Peter is annoyed at Neil. He doesn't quite read him the riot act, but he does give him a stern dressing down, saying that the plan was for him to haul LaRoque and Neil in. Neil says, yeah, and he was okay with that plan, except that Raquel had the artifact on her and wasn't about to turn herself in, and possibly wasn't going to let herself be taken in. Flippantly describing LaRoque as a mysterious, gorgeous, hat-wearing expert in a certain subject that Neil finds particularly sexy, Peter's wondering why Neil ditched him. Neil says, I told you why. She's a thief. And when Peter says, and you are, Neil responds that he's someone who escaped capture in a crowded restaurant by saying two words, FBI raid. Then Peter tells Neil, don't get cocky. But as he's saying that, Neil's phone begins ringing. It's Mozzie. Neil immediately asks what's going on because Hale didn't show. But Mozzie tells him the reason. Hale's dead. Back at the rooftop parking area, Mozzie is despondent. He tells Neil that Hale was the last of the gentleman fences and that he didn't have any enemies. Neil asks Peter if they have any idea who's responsible, but there are no fingerprints, there's no blood spatter, there's no evidence of any kind. Mozzie asks Peter if they've checked the security feed. And of course, Peter doesn't know what Mozzie's talking about, so Neil informs him that Mozzie had installed a security feed in the car. When Peter asks Mozzie, well, why didn't you tell anyone? Mozzie is a bit put out, saying he tried to, which is interesting. Had the officers on the scene not been interested in his information because of who he was, or perhaps because they didn't think he had any useful information, maybe because they had already come to a preconceived conclusion and didn't think that they needed to do a more thorough investigation, or because they knew who Hale was and didn't feel like spending any more time on an investigation? I mean... After all, who cares about a dead criminal, right? I don't know. It's, it's an interesting little question, though. Peter gets Mozzie the items he needs to access the security recordings, and as he's getting things hooked up, it's explained that the security system is sound activated and only records when somebody's talking. So they start watching the video. They hear Hale talking to someone out of sight. They see Hale get into the car. Then they see Matthew Keller rise from the back seat of the car, gun in hand. 
After they finish watching the video, Peter and Neil walk a short distance away, leaving Mozzie to grieve. Peter asks Neil how Keller knew Hale. Neil states that he didn't, and Neil would have known if he did. Peter concludes that Hale's death is somehow connected to Raquel and the amulet. After a pause and looking at Neil, he adds, unless it's something else. And with an undercurrent of anger, Neil answers that he wishes he knew. Peter decides it's best to shut down the operation. He doesn't want to take the chance that Keller knows that Neil is going undercover with Raquel. Now, this is interesting in that although he really doesn't say anything about it, it seems that Peter is more concerned with Neil's safety here than he is the case. Regardless if he shuts it down or not, or if Keller rats out Neil to Raquel, or Keller is simply using Raquel to hunt down Neil, in all three cases, as far as the operation goes, the result is the same. The operation is blown. The only difference between the three possibilities, as far as I can see, is that in the second and third possibilities, Keller ratting out Neil to Raquel or using Raquel to hunt down Neil, Neil is in danger. In the first, shutting down the operation, Neil is protected. I think this may be the first time that Peter has come right out and made a decision to risk giving up a successful result in an investigation in order to protect Neil. And it's a remarkable decision, especially considering that Peter genuinely believes that Neil is somehow involved in the theft of the Nazi sub-treasure. I think it shows that father-like care for a son that I've mentioned Peter seems to have toward Neil. A, a father-like care that on the one hand realizes that a son who's done something wrong needs to suffer the consequences, but at the same time is willing to sacrifice whatever he needs to in order to protect that son from danger. And maybe to also try to minimize the effects of the consequences. Not, not remove them entirely, just minimize the effect. Anyway, Neil insists that Peter has to keep the operation in play, pointing out that Keller thinks he sanitized the car and he doesn't know that they've seen him. But Peter says no, not, at least not until we find out more about how Hale died. But Neil insists that if this is Keller's plan, Raquel is the best way to draw him out. And if they wait, they may lose their chance with Raquel. Reluctantly, Peter gives in. He wants Keller stopped. Next, we see Sarah walking down the street, and we see Keller leaning against the parked car next to the sidewalk. As she walks by, he calls her name. She stops, surprised that this man who she's never met seems to somehow know her name. Adopting a vaguely European accent, Keller introduces himself as Agent Sloan, Interpol, and he flips a badge for her to glance at. He says he wants to talk to her about Neil Caffrey. Sarah makes it apparent that she has no interest in talking about Neil, but Keller slash Sloan is insistent. He says that he knows about the treasure. Sarah feigns ignorance, but Keller slash Sloan says that they, meaning Interpol, have been following Neil ever since the suspicious events surrounding Vincent Adler's death. He says that she can shed some light on what he terms Neil's extravagant lifestyle while serving time. Sarah rebuffs him, saying, Sorry, Neil and I are over. But Keller slash Sloan shows her a picture of the two of them from the episode Taking Account, saying, there you both are, purchasing four helicopters. What does one do with four helicopters? Okay, so Sarah's smart, but why didn't she comment that this had occurred weeks earlier and that things had changed since then? And why didn't she question why, if he was truly from Interpol and they had been following Neil, that they hadn't noticed that there had been a change in the relationship between Sarah and Neil, and that they had not been in contact for at least a short time since that photo in question had been taken. Keller slash Sloan goes on to say that Sterling Bosch has some pretty strict rules about theft recovery, and then he asks, has her boss mentioned anything about an internal investigation? Again, Sarah is smart, and she's an experienced investigator. She should know this technique the technique of an investigator asking a question as a guess to elicit information. And she should assume that all questions being asked are leading questions to which the interrogator doesn't actually know the answer, or he's implying things that aren't factual or known. Also, Sterling Bosch certainly would have strict internal rules about theft recovery regarding items insured by Sterling Bosch. But for items not insured by Sterling Bosch, I would think their response would be, much different. That's not to say that if one of their recovery agents was involved in criminal activity or involved in the cover-up of criminal activity, that it would be left unnoticed. But would they initiate an investigation of one of their agents in a recovery 
that didn't directly involve the company without there being a formal criminal investigation being initiated against that person first? I don't think so. And presumably Sarah would know this. Anyway, Sarah falls for Keller's deception saying that, no, her boss hasn't said anything about an investigation to which Keller says, that's because I haven't mentioned this case to him yet. A little suspicious, but we'll let that one slide. Then Keller starts playing hardball. He tells her that she needs to give him some information he can use because one way or another, Neil's going down. Now, if she gives him something, maybe he gets off light. If not, he goes down hard. Emotional manipulation in case she still has feelings for him. And if Neil goes down hard, he's got enough on Sarah to take her down as well as an accessory. Back at the FBI, Neil informs Peter that he's heard from Raquel. Neil is to meet her the following day at her lab. Peter tells Neil that the FBI has her place staked out and her phone tapped, but there's no further word on Keller, not that he was expecting anything. As he's saying this, he looks at the photo on his desk of himself and Elizabeth, and Neil notices. Neil then counsels Peter to tell Elizabeth about Keller, now that they know for certain that he's back in the States. And Peter's surprised, after all, Neil Caffrey, suggesting that someone shouldn't keep secrets from their partner, seems a bit out of character to him. So he asks, hey, where's this coming from? Neil says, someone who keeps a lot of secrets. He says it seriously, but it strikes Peter as humorous. Or maybe it's the out-of-character nature of the response that strikes him humorous. But either way, he chuckles, breaking the slight tension created by the response, and Neil casually joins in, probably thankful for the escape of having been uncomfortably too honest in the moment. Then he tells Peter, let's nail Keller. At Neil's apartment, Sarah arrives in a panic. And Mozzie's in a bit of a snit. Where's Neil? Oh, hello to you too. No, Mozzie, this is important. Did you try calling him? I can't. You don't want to, or you're not physically capable of dialing a telephone? Okay, do you still sweep this place for bugs? What do you think? You may speak freely within these walls. I know about the treasure. I saw it on Neil's laptop. Oh, damn it. He wants you to run away to the island with us, so Neil told you. He didn't tell me. Oh, did I tell you? Mozzie, there is an Interpol agent who is on to you and Neil. He has been following you for weeks, and he knows about the treasure. Did you tell him anything? Well, I had to give him something. Oh, to protect yourself? No, to protect all of us. He was going to drag us all in. Neil was really going to tell me everything? Yes, but I talked him out of it for the exact reason that you're standing here right now. What did you tell the agent? I never said that you two were involved, but I had to give him the IP address for the treasure cam. How long ago? I don't know. How I, long? 40 minutes ago. I didn't give him the password. I assumed it wasn't easily hacked. Uh, unless you're Interpol, I, I just shut down the feed. You already know about Agent Sloan. That's who you met? Yeah. And you gave him the IP address? Mozzie, what? It's the one man who wants Neil dead. So, wait a second here. Mozzie was overjoyed when Sarah broke it off with Neil. And now he's seemingly mad at her for breaking it off with Neil. Either that or he's just simply mad because he thinks that she's trying to re-enter his life except that he was immediately cross with her even before she gave him any details and the reason for her presence okay so i don't think it's because mozzie thinks she's trying to re-enter neil's life i think he's just mad at her because she hurt neil by leaving despite the fact that he's happy she left him mozzie seems to be Mozzie, Mozzie seems to be having trouble deciding which side of the fence he's on. Is he mad at Sarah for leaving or happy that she's left? Seems like he's both and neither. And this is, you know, this is one of those problems with being offended on somebody else's behalf. You get inconsistent and you get hypocritical in what you say and how you behave. And of course, we see Mozzie's paranoia coming up. First with Sarah knowing about the treasure, and then with Sarah having told the so-called agent anything. And of course, all of this stems from the fact that they tried to keep all of this from Sarah in the first place. Mozzie in particular, as he admits here. Mozzie and Neil forgot the rule that it's better to control a situation than let the situation control you. Sarah was close to the situation, and they should have realized that there was a chance that she would find out. And it would have been better if they had told her so that she knew not only the details, but also all of the players, such as Keller. 
But not having done that, she didn't know any better. So when Keller came along posing as an Interpol agent, she had no idea who Keller was. She had no reason not to believe him, other than the fact that there were some red flags in their conversation. But just in terms of the general situation, she didn't know what was going on. And so she didn't realize that Keller might be trying to play her. Anyway, next, after Sarah and Mozzie's talk, Mozzie calls Neil and tells him what happened. He tells Neil that he's reset the IP address so that the feed is secured again. But Neil realizes that if Keller did get a chance to connect to the video feed before Mozzie had a chance to change it, then he's seen the treasure and knows that it's real. Mozzie tries to assure Neil that even if Keller did get a glimpse of the treasure, there's no way he could trace it back to the warehouse. Neil's response is tart about how Mozzie also assured him that there was no way that a swatch of the canvas from his painting could have survived the fire, yet one did. Mozzie says he's got a backup plan that he's going to put into play to take care of Keller, but Neil insists that, no, I will handle Keller. You focus on securing the art. Mozzie says, no, no, he's going to stop Keller once and for all, but Neil's already hung up. Then we see Mozzie grab the Degas and put it into a large folio case. Next, we are in one of the FBI surveillance vans. Peter removes Neil's anklet. Jones hands Neil one of the FBI's trick watches that contains a radio and tracking device. Peter reminds Neil to only turn it off if Raquel scans for bugs, because if Neil's out of contact for more than a minute, Peter's coming in with the team. He also tells Neil that the moment that he knows that the amulet is real to give the secret word, and Peter and the team will bust in. Inside, Raquel lets Neil into the lab area, but before he gets too far in, she stops him and begins to scan him for bugs. And of course, Neil turns off the tracker and eavesdropping mechanisms on the watch. After she scans him, Neil comments that that wasn't too painful. And Raquel assures him that it was necessary because without running him through a scanner, they would have had to have worked in the nude, a situation which Neil would have undoubtedly found appealing under other circumstances. As they walk deeper into her lab, Neil turns on the wash just in time, and a very noisy air conditioning system kicks in, prompting Neil to ask if perhaps they are in the company of spirits. In the van, Peter notes that there were only eight seconds left before the minute was up and tells Jones that they can expect Keller to act in a window that small. Back inside, Neil is admiring the prize. It's a crystal pyramid that he says looks like a $20 paperweight. Raquel says she hopes it's not, and cautions Neil to be careful with it, saying that this one's special. Next, we see Mozzie in a confession box. His confession begins, Bless me, Father, for I am about to sin. The priest says, We all are. But this is no ordinary priest, because he knows that Mozzie is there for more than just a confession. He asks, What do you want? Mozzie hands the bent priest a photo, saying, I need your help with a problem. The priest seems to recognize Keller and reads on the photo, $6 million. Mozzie continues, he killed a friend of mine. Now he's threatening others close to me. The priest notes that $6 million, that's a lot, and asks if there's a particular client Mozzie has in mind. No, it's open season. Spoils go to the victor. When the priest asks if there's an address, Mozzie curtly says, no, let your people earn their money. For $6 million, they can find him. And as Mozzie gets up to leave, the priest gently reminds him to leave something in the collection plate. Back at Raquel's lab, Neil is working on the piece by submerging it in some sort of caustic liquid. And there's that annoying air conditioner going off again. Raquel steps away, telling Neil that she's going to turn the thing off. When she returns, Neil shows her the prize. They discuss the hieroglyphics, with Raquel commenting that it's a beautiful language. Neil says, really, it's an art. Then he asks if she's ever heard of the Papyrus Seven Scrolls. Well, of course she has, but it was a shame that they were proven to be forgeries. Neil points out that they were only proven to be forgeries after a dozen different Egyptologists weighed in. Raquel Kalmont said, yeah, she was one of those experts. But in spite of that, they were works of art. And it takes her a moment, but then she realizes, that was you? Neil, with a false sense of modesty, says, well, that's the speculation. In the lab, Raquel expresses her admiration. In the van, Peter expresses impatience. In the lab, Neil hands Raquel the amulet 
and as she's inspecting it, he asks if she can read the inscription. In the van, Peter instructs the team to get ready to move when Neil gives the signal. In the lab, Raquel doesn't have a chance to read the inscription before they hear the voice of Matthew Keller recite, You have come forth to the beautiful place to which we run. Raquel asks who he is, and Keller identifies himself as an old friend of Neil's. Neil assures him that they were something, but they were never friends. So Keller says, then just think of him as the man who stole the amulet from the Egyptian museum. But now he wants it back. Gun in hand, Keller approaches Neil, Raquel, and the workbench. Keller looks at Neil and says, what are you worried about? Don't worry about the boys in the van. Feds aren't coming. And of course, Raquel is taken aback. Keller tells her, yeah, he's a criminal consultant for the FBI. And suddenly Raquel realizes that this Neil is the famous Neil Caffrey. Neil tries to warn her that Keller is extremely dangerous and that she shouldn't believe anything he says. But Raquel, who has been slowly inching her way behind the workbench and inching her hand down to the underside of the top of the workbench, pulls out a gun of her own and points it at Keller, who seems to be somewhat excited about the standoff. Raquel decides that she isn't going to believe either one of them, nor is she going to stick around to figure out who's telling the truth. Keller condescendingly says, that's a good idea, sweetheart. This is just guy talk. And Raquel, equally dismissive, says, boys will be boys, and then leaves the two men alone. And after Raquel is gone, Neil demands to know what Keller wants. Keller tells him it's simple. He wants the treasure. Well, it takes a minute, but Neil finally realizes that Keller has set this entire thing up. He stole the amulet and had Raquel's restorer arrested in Egypt so she would need someone new. And Keller says, yeah, too bad for you that you didn't figure it out before now. Then we see Raquel walking down the street, talking on the phone to somebody, probably the priest, who's told her that there's a hit out on Keller, a big one. Voice on the phone tells her that it's a $6 million hit, but he tells her to keep her distance. She tells the voice that he's at her place right now and that he owes her. Back at the lab, Keller's taunting Neil with his knowledge or his supposed knowledge of Neil's treasure at the warehouse. When Neil tells Keller that he doesn't have the treasure, Keller agrees. Neil doesn't have it because Keller's got it now. Keller goes to one of the computers in the lab, types in a few things, and then shows Neil what's on the screen. Two men hauling crates out of a warehouse. Neil looks at the screen for a moment, then looks at Keller. Keller's triumphant. I won, Neil. Neil unexpectedly swings at Keller, hitting him hard in the face. Keller goes down momentarily, but then comes back up, gun in hand, and fires a wild shot in Neil's direction. As this has been happening, out in the van, Peter had been getting suspicious. It had gone quiet. And then he heard the air conditioner. That obnoxiously noisy air conditioner kick on. Peter turned to Jones for confirmation, asking, didn't she say she turned off the air conditioner? When Jones confirmed that that's what he remembered, Peter reviewed the previous audio, and he again heard Raquel say that she was turning off the air conditioner. And he realized that somehow they've been getting fed an audio loop and that they haven't heard anything live for some time. So he'd ordered the team to move in. And as they were climbing the stairs to the apartment, they heard the shot that Keller took. Back in the apartment, Keller is proverbially rubbing salt into the wound, telling Neil that Hale didn't want to give up any information about the Degas. And Sarah, you know, he says, pretty little Sarah, whose heart you broke, didn't want to betray him either. Then Keller delivers what he seems to think is the final insult. Congratulations, Neil. You've made friends. Peter and the team start banging at the door and Keller starts to head out through the back. But he pauses long enough to toss the amulet to Neil, telling him it's a consolation prize. After Keller is gone, Neil heads over to the computer with the video feed on it and begins working to shut it off while hollering at Peter that he's alone and unarmed. And just a minute, he's unlocking the door. He puts the amulet in his pocket and then runs to unbolt the door. Letting Peter and the team in, he says that Keller was there, he's armed, and he headed out the back way. Peter and the team go looking for Keller, but he's gone through a so-called rabbit hole. And while the team was in the back looking for Keller, Neil has disappeared out the front. And he's off anklet. Next, we see Neil walking down the sidewalk, talking on the phone to Mozzie as he's headed toward the warehouse. As they're trying to come up with a plan, Mozzie checks out the situation at the warehouse, expecting to see Keller and his men so that he can give Neil an idea of the situation he's walking into. Except 
Keller's not there. They're gone? Ozzy checks the old feed and says, yes, they're there, but no, they're not there. Neil's understandably confused. Mozzie tells him that the warehouse Neil saw in the feed isn't theirs. It's a fake. Presumably, Keller couldn't follow the signal to the real location, so he set up a fake warehouse and hacked the feed to show the fake. And apparently, the only reason Keller showed up at the warehouse was to get Neil to lead him to the real warehouse, off Anklet, which means that Keller can take Neil down, and the FBI has no idea where Neil's going to be, which means that Neil has no backup. And Neil doesn't know if he's being followed because it never occurred to him that he needed to check. So they decide that the best plan is to lead Keller someplace else and then wait until help arrives. And they decide the best place is something called the palace. As Neil heads off toward the palace, Mozzie makes a phone call to his priest with an address that the priest might find useful. Now, given the visuals that we see and the address that we get just a short time later in the episode, the palace appears to be a reference to the Temple Court building at 5 Beekman Street, which is part of the Beekman Hotel and Residences, which consists of three interconnected structures. The Temple Court building was originally built between 1881 and 1883, and that's the building that we see, with the annex constructed between 1889 and 1890. The Temple Court building and the annex were made a New York City-designated landmark in 1997, but was abandoned in 2001, and proposed for development, during which time it was sold multiple times and used for film shoots. Construction of the Beekman Residences Tower portion of the property started in 2014 and was completed in 2016, with the original building being extensively renovated as well and reopened in 2016. At the palace, Neil is up several floors looking down through the open column, or the open yeah, it's an open column area, I guess you could call it, in the center of the ground floor. Keller's down there, and Neil activates the GPS on his watch, which Peter's team picks up, giving them a destination. While playing cat and mouse, Keller begins hollering at Neil that he knows that he's not keeping the loot on the upper level. Neil shouts back that he's not keeping the loot in the building at all. Keller hollers that Neil is as predictable as everyone else. The moment he thought he saw his treasure being hauled away, he dodged the feds and led Keller straight to it. And after a few moments and a few close calls, Neil steps from behind a pillar and tells Keller, or maybe I figured out your plan and brought you here instead. But Keller doesn't give Neil that much credit and says he doesn't believe him. Then Keller tries going with the, hey, let's work on this together routine. And then he throws in a subtle threat saying that Neil knows that giving the treasure to Keller is really his only chance of getting out of the situation. I mean, after all, Neil can't let Peter know that he stole the treasure right out from under his nose as Keller puts it. He says it would break Peter's heart. So Keller just wants to help Neil by relieving him of the burden. It's a win-win. Keller gets the treasure. Neil gets to keep his criminal consultant life and the love and affection of his buddy, Peter Burke. Neil responds that it's Keller who is as predictable as everyone else. His arrogance, his greed, and now he's trapped. But again, Keller doesn't give Neil that much credit, and he says he still doesn't believe him. But he does admit that he doesn't understand why Neil would just sit on the treasure for so long, saying, it seems to me you either sell it, you turn it in, or you run. Neil supplies yet another possibility. The feds are on their way, and he doesn't have the treasure. Well, by this time, Keller's had enough of the cat and mouse and Neil's lack of cooperation. He tells Neil that he doesn't deserve that treasure because he doesn't have what it takes to hold on to it. And more importantly, and more deadly to Neil, he's not the only one who knows where it is. Raising his gun toward Neil, Keller says what he believes will be the final words Neil will ever hear. I'll tell Muzzy you said hi. But Calvary comes in just in time with Peter, Jones, and the team coming up behind Keller, ordering him to drop his weapon. As the team disarms Keller and places him in handcuffs, Neil tells him, I didn't lie to you, Keller. I don't have the treasure. As Keller gives Peter a sarcastic, good to see you again, Berkey, comment, a laser dot appears on Keller's face. As the sound of voices shouting, shooter, ring out, a shot comes at Keller. Fortunately, the shooter's aim is off, and Keller's only hit in the shoulder rather than in the head. As Peter and the other agents begin wildly firing into the darkness, in the presumed direction of where the shots came from, Keller slips out. 
Neil spots him several floors below, and the agents begin firing wildly at him as he runs to escape. I suspect someone will have a lot of explaining to do over this, at least for all the shots that they took that amounted to nothing, and possibly for firing at a suspect who, although fleeing, did not pose an immediate threat to anyone. Anyway, Peter orders the teams to pursue Keller, but of course the odds are not in their favor. But on the upside, Diana has come up with their shooter, Raquel. At the FBI, Peter is confronting Neil. Why did he run? Neil says, Keller escaped. I went after him. Peter recognizes that Neil is only giving Peter as little as he can. Peter insists Neil explain why. When he had a dozen federal agents at his side, he cut his audio feed and his GPS. What did Keller want with him? Neil says that Peter was right. Keller thought that Neil had the treasure, so he led him to the palace, the kind of place Keller would believe Neil had used as a hiding place for it. And then he turned on the GPS so Peter could follow. Still not good enough. Peter says that Neil didn't do all this until after he had escaped. But Neil has an answer for that as well. If he had done it any other way, Peter and the team would have shown up before Neil got there and led Keller there, and Keller would have fled. Neil insists that it worked. We had him until she took a shot at him. But Neil doesn't know why she did that. Well, Peter has the answer to that. Someone put a $6 million bounty out on Keller. Apparently, they weren't the only ones who wanted him. Neil seems to agree. Peter tells Neil, give me your foot. And he puts the anklet back on him and then says, you can go. As he's leaving, Diana is bringing Raquel in. She says, you had me. Neil tells her, look, Peter's a good agent, and he wants Keller more than she does. But she's angry because Keller took her scarab. There's a silent moment between the two as Neil gives her a look and a subtly raised eyebrow. She grabs his head and kisses him long and hard, long enough for Neil to slip her the scarab. Except, even if she's been subjected to a body search once, she's going to be subjected to another search again which means that she's going to have to hide the scarab somewhere on her person that won't be searched very closely, which gives her very few options. After they separate, Neil is at his desk in the FBI offices when Sarah comes in. Sarah, what are you doing here? Peter called me in. Oh. To make a statement about my meeting with Keller. I'm glad you're safe. I had a long talk with Mozzie. Your secret's safe with me, Neil. I hope you don't forget everything between us. Well, no, not everything. I won't forget about that Raphael you stole. Allegedly. <laughs> so, what did Mozzie tell her? How much did Mozzie tell her? Obviously, we can't know the details at this point, but I'm guessing Mozzie did the noble thing and got Neil off the hook with Sarah, at least as far as the responsibility for the actual theft of the treasure. Anyway, next we see Peter arriving home. He quietly makes his way into the bedroom where Elizabeth is sleeping, book still open by her side. As he puts a bookmark in it, she wakes up. Hi. Hi. Did you catch any bad guys today? A couple. Oh, good. I can go back to sleep now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Honey, you okay? There's something I need to tell you. Okay. One of the guys we were pursuing, he got away. Are you concerned? It's Matthew Keller. Why, Keller's in New York? Why didn't you tell me? Because we weren't sure. Then we had him cornered. Honey, this man had you kidnapped. I know. We're going to find him. FBI has got him on the most wanted list. The U.S. Marshals are out in full force. And there's a bounty on his head. I should have told you. I'm sorry. Don't do this. I can handle it. You know that. What I can't handle is finding out after something happens. Nothing will. I promise. I don't believe that Peter has ever accepted any relationship advice from Neil. Now, in the past, he's sought out Neil's advice on romance. But that's not the same thing as relationship advice. And yet, it was Neil who told Peter not to hide the reappearance of Keller from Elizabeth. Relationship advice. And it was good advice, particularly when you consider how much of a team Peter and Elizabeth have been throughout his career. Withholding information from your work partner or your spouse is rarely a good idea and rarely works out well. 
And when your work partner is also your spouse and your spouse is also your work partner or, or after a fashion, it's doubly not a good idea. And of course, spouses of law enforcement officers, firefighters, and other first responders know that. And of course, the spouses of law enforcement officers, firefighters, and other first responders know that the possibilities of never seeing their loved one again is higher than in many other professions, possibly higher than in most professions. And that's under normal everyday circumstances. And the situation with Keller isn't a normal everyday circumstance. Now, I understand he was trying to spare her, but this is one of those things where a little pain now could potentially ease a greater pain later. But yeah, Peter should have told her. And it's a shame that Neil didn't take his own advice with regard to Sarah, but instead resorted to hiding the fact of the treasure from her. Granted, the circumstances were substantially different, his life wasn't in danger, at least not up to the point where Keller eventually came back into the picture. But in some ways, it was similar. By telling her about the treasure up front, including the details of how it wasn't his idea to steal it, she might have been hurt, but, but it might have hurt less to discover this at the beginning than to discover later that Neil had withheld the information and lied to her about it as well. Uh, granted, it may have sabotaged the relationship at the beginning, but it might not have. Uh, they might have been able to work through it, but the withheld truth about the treasure would have been more likely to sabotage the relationship at the end. But I guess, like most people, Neil can see things clearer when it involves other people and not himself. Anyway, Elizabeth asks Peter about the bounty, and he says that all they know about it at this point is that someone is willing to pay $6 million to make Keller go away permanently. In the meantime, Neil is back at the table in his apartment, again going over the partial manifest that he had photographed from Peter's house, again comparing that list of items to the items that are still in the warehouse. The Van Dyke, God, Matisse, Ortega, where's Ortega? Marcy, what did you do? Yeah. We arrested Keller. No? Except as we were cuffing him, someone shot him. Winged him. And in the chaos, he escaped. Oh? Someone put a bounty on his head. A six million dollar bounty? No, that's roughly the black market sale price of the Degas. No, that's exactly the sale price of the Degas. He fenced it. You should have asked me. No, you should have told me Sarah knew about the warehouse. Guess we're in the habit of keeping secrets now. He took out a hit on Keller. He killed Hale. He went after Sarah. Keller wasn't going to stop till he destroys you. I told you not to sell it. It was all set up. I didn't have time to fence anything it's else. It's on the list, Moss. It's on the damn list. Excuse me? Where did you get this? You told me when you broke into Peter's house, the list wasn't there. It was. You lied to me? We got bigger problems. When the day God turns up, and it will, the FBI is going to know the treasure didn't burn, and we are the prime suspects. Why didn't you tell me? Look, it doesn't matter now. Who did you fence it through? We have to get it back. Or we're done, Moz. We're done. I previously mentioned that there were cracks developing in the relationship between Neil and Mozzie, that they weren't talking to each other enough to realize that their goals were diverging. And for a guy who professes to not believe in relationships because of the dangers they pose to those who live on the criminal side of the street, Mozzie is certainly letting his relationships with people lead him into some erratic and questionable decisions. He was happy that Sarah broke it off with Neil, because now Neil was unencumbered and they could take off. Then he was offended and angry on Neil's behalf at Sarah for breaking it off with Neil, presumably because he saw the hurt that Neil was experiencing. Then he cites Keller threatening Sarah as one of the reasons to justify putting a contract out on Keller. He led his relationship with an affection for Hale and his anger at Keller for Hale's death push him into selling the Degas, knowing full well that Despite his rationalization that it was likely not on the manifest, 
it might be on the manifest and that if it was, selling it would be a highly risky proposition. And he did this despite Neil adamantly telling him not to do it because of his relationship to Hale. That's why he did it. And it seems that more than just an inconsistency in his supposed beliefs against personal relationship, Mozzie seems to be battling Neil for a position of dominance in the relationship between the two of them. We know from previous episodes that Mozzie has been sort of a mentor to Neil and kind of the brains behind the operation, but it seems that their positions have changed, at least to being more on the level of more or less equals. And I think Mozzie is struggling with that to the point where he's making rash decisions and doing things that he knows Neil would object to almost as if he's trying to provoke a reaction from Neil. He not only withheld the truth from Mozzie about having the manifest, but he's also been in a power conflict with Mozzie and he's been in a conflict with himself between his old life and his new or potential new one. And he's withheld all that from Mozzie as well. As I said before, Mozzie has seen glimmers of it, but he doesn't really understand the extent to which the conflict exists in Neil because Neil isn't talking to him about it. So really there's a three-way struggle between Mozzie, the old Neil, and the new Neil. And ultimately it's led to this point where the partnership between Neil and Mozzie may completely fracture. They either have to resolve their differences and start being more honest with each other or we're done, Mozzie, we're done. Reminder that you can visit the website at www.whitecollaredpc.com and there you will find links to the resources that I've used in creating this episode, show notes, link to the White Collar Fandom Group on Facebook, as well as links to ways that you can support the show financially. Thank you for listening and be sure and join me for the next episode as I share my thoughts on Season 3, Episode 10, Countdown. Until then, take care and God bless.